My name is Tim Freak. I call myself a philosopher, but essentially I'm simply a deeply curious human being. Today I'm in Hampstead, London, to speak with Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert is a pioneering biologist and researcher into parapsychology, best known for his groundbreaking concept of morphic resonance. Here we are. This is happening to us. We're heading to death. We now know we're living in an enormous universe, which is extremely old. What do you make of it? What, what do you think this is? And, and what do you think we should do with it? Well, um, big question, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I think we are living in an enormous universe that's extremely old. Um, and we could just ignore all that. After all, most people didn't know we lived in an enormous universe until quite recently, and it didn't affect their lives too much. Um, I suppose that one of the questions is, does, is this scientific knowledge very relevant? I mean, for most people it's not very relevant. They're not very interested in it. Um, and for most of us who are, we don't spend that much time thinking about the enormous universe. Um, I think what it does show is that there's a huge range of possibilities in nature, in the cosmos. Um, the whole evolutionary process shows a huge range of possibilities. We exist within this vast wealth of possibility and creativity. Um, we're part of a vast process. Um, do we play uh, some essential role in cosmic evolution? I think we do. I think humanity as a whole does. Um, I mean, otherwise it's just very small lives on a very small planet and a That seems to be the galaxy. That, that's, the, that's the dilemma, isn't it? That we've, I mean, certainly the one that I see us facing right now is how do you square that vast and because of its slightly bleak mm. vision of the cosmos, which mm. we now have, with the intimacy of our lives, with look, the search for meaning, and how do you square that for yourself? Well, I think, you know, the big dilemma that's faced by most people in the modern world is the tension between the materialist, secular worldview, which is the basis of our educational system and dominates the media, and, and so the idea that the whole of this evolutionary process has no purpose and meaning that we've emerged through blind chance, yeah. that minds are nothing but brains. Mental activity is brain activity. Minds are what brains do. A cerebrocentric view of consciousness that puts consciousness only inside human and perhaps animal heads. Um, and the whole of the rest of the universe is unconscious. That's the standard default scientific materialist view. Um, or the view that almost all great traditions have had through all, all history, which is that we live in a universe that's fundamentally conscious, that's a form of consciousness underlying nature and permeating nature, and that we're part of some vastly greater conscious reality. Our minds are somehow linked to an ultimate mind, which we can feel or experience through direct mystical experiences or unitive experiences or revelations. So, do you, when you say the universe is conscious, mm. I mean, 
I just want to be, what do you mean by the word conscious there? Well, having a mind with subjective experience. So actual experience? Yes. Because I, 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 I guess my interest is to take those two worldviews, which you put so beautifully, and it feels like, look, there's, there's this, this, this ancient worldview of spirituality mm. and this new worldview of science. And somehow they need to create a third worldview, a new synthesis, which can see the, see the value of both, but both requires both to change. And one of the problems I have with the idea of the universe being totally conscious is it feels like, well, I'm conscious or unconscious. And there's things which are happening in my life right now, which are happening unconsciously. And then when I look at the evolutionary picture, it feels like, well, consciousness, isn't consciousness an emergent property of the universe? Isn't, isn't it something else which is the, the ground? What, why is it consciousness that's the ground? Or is it in everything? How is a plant conscious? It's not like us. Well, well, the point is that if we take our own, we know more about ourselves than anything else in sure. terms of consciousness. Yeah. And clearly our own consciousness is only part of our mental life. A yes. vast amount of it's unconscious. Yes. Um, and what's unconscious, basically, are habits. Yes. Now, my own view of how nature works, I mean, it's not shared by most scientists, but my own view is that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits that depend on a kind of memory within nature. Um, when things become habitual, typically they become unconscious. Yeah. When you start learning to ride a bicycle, you have to think, you learn, you put your foot on a pedal, you push down, you hold the handlebars. Once you've learned it, you don't think it about it at all. It's an automatic habit. When you're learning a new language, it's you search for each word and you have to think out the grammar. And so, but so when you speak a language fluently, it comes just flows. So that, but isn't that? Wouldn't that mean then that? I mean, I love that by the way, and I want to talk a little mm. bit more about that. I think it's a, a, an astonishing insight that you've just shared there. Mm. But just to finish that previous bit of how, the, the, whether everything is conscious, wouldn't that mean that things which are not learning like we learn, like plants, like chemicals, like they're not conscious because they're doing it through the habits of nature. They're not conscious like we are in that reflective way. That's something which has emerged with us or with oh, other forms of Oh, well, I don't think it's emerged with us. Okay. I mean, I think, you see, I think what consciousness is to do with is the realm of possibility. Yeah. I think consciousness is about possibilities. Possibilities are not the same as actualities. Yep. Um, and I think one of the great insights of the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead was yep. that this aspect of possibility is something that happens all through nature. I mean, in quantum theory, um, the Schrodinger wave equation for an electron, which tells you what an electron's going to do, doesn't tell you what it's exactly going to do. It tells you all the possible things it could do. So there's a whole realm of possibility, even for an electron, which doesn't exist as a physical fact. Possibility is not a physical fact. As soon as the electron chooses, or an, as soon as a choice is made for it, or maybe at random, of all those possibilities collapse down to one actual thing it does, it's called the collapse of the wave function, then uh, it becomes a physical measurable fact, but it's in the past. But is that the same thing as, isn't, isn't the, what, what defines it, what consciousness is that we know we're doing that. Like, I know that I'm choosing a possibility to say this sentence, whereas in a plant, say, 
that it doesn't know that it's doing that. Isn't that the defining thing about well, consciousness? Well, no, I think consciousness would come in whenever there's an uncertainty and a decision needs to be made. I think it's the ability to hold together possibilities and to choose among them. I think that's the but function. But isn't, isn't the choosing the key? You, do you yes, think, do you think I plants think are choosing? Plant, well, I think they might be. Okay. You know, when, when you have a tendril of a climbing plant sort yeah. of searching around for something to grip onto, yeah. um, you know, when it finds uh, a, an object and wraps around it, it may, it, it's searching, it's searching a space of possibilities, it finds something, it acts. I think that there may be, in situations like that, an element of choice. I think a lot of its actions are to do with habit, yeah. um, just as most of ours are to do with habit. Yeah. So whenever there's a choice, whenever there's a possibility of doing it one way or another way, um, then I think consciousness may come into play. So I, I think I would, I would essentially agree with you, it's just I'll probably call it a subjectivity, that there is something about its relationship with the world. But maybe, maybe, maybe it'd be a good opportunity to move on to one thing about your work which I find uh, really influential in my own way of seeing the world, my own philosophy, is, well, to take one of your wonderful phrases, the presence of the past. Mm. For me, uh, my method, I'm not a scientist, I, my method has been always just to look at the moment, look at the moment and see what I see. Mm. And there was a certain point in that development where it became obvious to me that when I looked at the moment, it had two qualities. One was that it was always manifesting a new possibility, mm. always. There was never a repeat, it's obvious, but it's interesting. And the second was, and this is where it relates to your insights, I think, was that it contained everything that had happened before mm. and that the past hadn't gone anywhere. Mm. And that the phrase that I had was that we had to stop seeing that the past as something which passes, mm. passes and instead that the, the past accumulates. Mm. There's just more of it. Mm. And therefore there's more information and that mm that we could see the universe as made of the past. And mm. in fact, we could see us as made of the past. So mm. right now, all of Tim's past is meeting all of Rupert's past. That's yeah. what's happening. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about how you've come to see that, because it feels really crucial, this idea that, that more than memory, like the past itself is integral to the very fabric of what reality is. Well, yes, I mean, that's what I think. Um... I mean, I arrived at this myself through looking at the development of plants and the biological development. Um, and in biology, everyone agrees that the past is vitally important, both through evolutionary history and through inheritance. I mean, inheritance is what we inherit from parents and ancestors. The usual biological theory of inheritance, of course, is that it's all chemical inside genes. Yeah or in epigenetic modifications of genes, which are still material changes. Um, when I was working on plant development and got interested in morphogenetic fields, for fields that shape form, uh, it became clear that they couldn't be inherited through genes. They had to be inherited some other way. So that was the basis for my coming up with the idea of morphic resonance, the idea of a direct connection from the past to the present based on similarity. So that really leads to, when generalized, to an idea that all of nature is shaped by the past. It's The whole of the past is potentially present everywhere and um, it influences the present. It underlies the habits of the present. Yeah. But there's always this openness to new possibility and there's always an openness to creativity. You can't explain creativity in terms of habit or memory, because yeah. 
that only explains repetition. So there has to be an element in the evolutionary process which is creative as well as one that's habitual and I see evolution as an interplay of habit and creativity. Yes, yes. The, the phrase that comes for me was, oh, each, meet, each moment is the coexistence of the past and the possible. Everything that has been and everything that could be is what defines every single moment. This is a new one. It includes everything that has been and it includes this now. And, there, and that process of realising new possibilities is what seems to have been happening for the last 3.8 billion years. Yes. That, that the potential for the universe has led to the unfolding of time and that the accumulation of the past has led to ever greater complexity yes. and each new moment referencing back to everything that's happened, yes. both as a limit and a foundation for a new creative possibility. Yes. And here we are still doing that. And, yes. and yet it now feels like where it's happening now primarily is no longer on a physical or even biological level, but on a psychic or soul level, that it's actually happening in the imagination, that these new possibilities, and that that's happening in between us right now. Yes. No, I completely agree. I think that puts it really clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you think uh, that's going, that process? Well, I mean, that, of course, is where it slightly depends on what overview one has of the what, what ultimate you think? source of consciousness and, and creativity. Well, you see, I, I think that there is an underlying consciousness of the whole universe. I think that the universe is not just emergent consciousness, but also comes out of consciousness to start with. I mean, this is a traditional view. Absolutely. In, in all religions, God as a creator, or in all religions with a creator God, not perhaps Buddhism, because yeah. that doesn't want to discuss this question, but <laughs> say in Hinduism yeah. or Christianity or yeah. Judaism or Islam, um, there's a primary consciousness which is the source of all nature and all minds. Um, so clearly part of that consciousness, if such consciousness exists, is creative and vastly more creative than anyone ever knew because the universe is vastly greater than anyone yeah. knew till the 20th century <laughs> and the evolutionary process is vastly yeah. more yeah. varied. Yeah. So whatever this ultimate mind is, it contains all possibilities yeah. and limitless possibilities way beyond anything we can conceive. But clearly part of the evolutionary process is to do with creativity and realizing possibilities and in, uh, in humanity at the moment this process is being tremendously speeded up. Yeah. Um, but if it's to be anything more than just a wild proliferation of novelties. So there's constant new gadgets, new apps, new programs, new products, uh, new ads, uh, new tunes, new books. I mean, that's what we're used to. Yeah. <coughs> Is it just about more and more new things all the time? It doesn't terribly see. It doesn't seem terribly convincing. Is it just until we're awash with novelty and new products and nothing lasts more than a few weeks or months and. Um, or is it going somewhere? Well, I'd like to think it's going somewhere, and if it's going somewhere, then it must be to do with the linking of our consciousness with this greater consciousness, and which spiritual practices and mystical experiences tell us something about. So, let me offer you this idea and see, see what your response is. I, I have had spiritual experiences which have shaped my life since I was a little boy. Mm. And the first recourse for that was to the concept of God. I almost became a friar in the Franciscan tradition at one point when I was younger. 
And then I increasingly had problems with the idea of the creator God, not just in terms of a crass idea of the seven days, but also just in terms of the, the problems that arise, traditional problems like the problem of evil, um, new problems like what I call the problem of absurdity, that it, you know, it's hard to see an a, a intelligence behind something like five years, complete collapse of the evolutionary process and extinctions mm. and millions of years of dinosaurs, all of that kind of like, it suddenly doesn't. And where I've ended up is to wonder whether the change from the traditional view is to see God not as the source, but as the destination. Whether actually what's happening is that the universe, which is arising from, from a, a ground of possibility, of being, of possibility, mm. through this process of becoming, is we're manifesting the, the most emergent potentials later, not first. We start with hydrogen, we've ended up with you and me making, having this mm. conversation. Mm. And that the greatest potential of all is the universe conscious of itself. And that that's what's arising through us, through, as we become conscious of the oneness of mm. being, it's arising. So that rather than it being a source, it's actually a destination. Well, I, I think that makes total sense. But I wouldn't say that was a contradiction of the traditional view. I okay. mean, we, we do have a very short, foreshortened view of creativity in the, since the 17th century, the idea that the universe is a machine, the foundation yeah. of mechanistic science, yeah. creates the idea of God as a machine maker, designing, right. creating it in the first place and pressing the start button and then retiring. Right. I mean, that's the view of God that most atheists don't believe in and yes. I don't believe in either. Um, the traditional view of God as put forward in great theologians like Aquinas and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, is that God is the first cause, not in the sense that God creates the universe in the first place, but is the ground of all causality and sustaining the universe from moment to moment, but is also the ultimate attractor to which the all things are drawn. And, you know, this was an idea in Aristotle too. He thought God was the prime mover of the universe, not by pushing it from the, in the first place, but by pulling it, by being the ultimate destination of all things. Yeah, that yeah. Which so a telos to which it's... A telos to which it's moving. And, you know, and you get that entire de Chardin too, the idea yeah. of an omega point. Yeah. So the idea of God as an attractor, as a goal, as a destination, makes total sense to me. Um, but, you see, I don't see the... I don't think of God as a creator as micromanaging everything in creation. I see the, the, a whole lot of autonomous wholenesses, like the cosmic mind, the galactic mind, the solar mind, the Earth's mind, the, the minds of species and ecosystems. Yes. All these different levels of organization, all of them autonomous to a degree. Yes. Um, and all of them creative. Um, so the, it's And the traditional uh, Christian, Islamic and Jewish view and Hindu view is not that God directly controls the whole of nature, uh, but rather there's a whole devolved system of intelligences thought of as angels, for example, in the Christian tradition, which are the uh, intelligences that operate within nature and, uh, and um, guide the course of nature. And not all of these angels are benign. I mean, the whole story of the fall of Satan is that there are ones that are primarily destructive or self-centered. So anyway, if we look at these traditional pictures, they don't require us to believe in a kind of God who tinkers with every detail. I, I guess it's, it's how we, it's how you know, the, 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 the whole 
issue of God only arises for me, I presume it's true for other people because of my actual experience. So my experience personally has been, oh, there is a being of love, mm. of profound goodness, that, in, mm. uh, that when I touch it is just sublime. Mm. That being of love, I find very hard to put at the beginning because the universe just seems so haphazard and so strange and so it does it feels like a being of possibility i can put at the beginning mm. but a being of love seems to be the fulfillment of that possibility not the source of that possibility i guess that's the it feels if god is the alpha and omega then this is in two different states it's it's brahma without qualities brahma with qualities it's that idea in hinduism that it's somewhere yes. it's a it, there is something different about the source and the destination. There's a fulfillment involved, which yes. gives this purpose. Without that, this would without that this would be just an ephemeral dream. It would be nothing. It would be meaningless. It only has meaning because it's actually going somewhere. Yes, and because it has differentiation within it, you can't have love unless there are at least two yes. poles. Or consciousness, the, probably. Or well, yes, or consciousness. But you can have a kind of proto love in the sense that. You know the parts of a system. You know, even ant colonies—they'll look. So love has evolved. Individual. Love, well, love can evolve. Yes, yes, I think so too. So is is that process moving towards the evolvement of this limitless love, which we can experience if we if we enter these spiritual states? There's this great, huge love, but as something which we are almost almost that we in we in going to it are creating it or helping to create it. That our lives have meaning because of it. Does that? resonate with your well it does yes I, I, I the big question is just how far it can spread you know people who have mystical experiences in the sense of a unity and a connection and the primacy of love which I suppose I mean I have had those experiences myself and I think that most people who've had them feel the presence of a divine being which or at least a being or consciousness which is loving yeah um, then is this a kind of niche interest of a tiny fraction of humanity who've got the time and leisure or unusual genes or have ingested appropriate or inappropriate <laughs> substances? Is this a kind of niche view? Uh, it's always been a minority position. Yeah. Is it likely to continue that way? Or is it telling us something bigger and better? And, you know, in the message of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, there's the idea that there'll be a transformation of humanity and indeed the earth and the creation into something where this sense of love does spread. But we've had 2,000 years of proclamation of that message and in some senses it's coming true. We live in kinder societies than ever yeah. before in a way. Absolutely. And, um, more inclusive and less exclusion of people with know sexual differences and so forth um, so there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is actually coming true in the modern world but it still falls sh far short of a kind of universal cosmic consciousness and I mean just look at anything on, on TV the internet the news etc it's clearly a long way off yes I would agree with you completely and and I'm very suspicious of. I mean, I'm sure, as I'm sure you must meet this, this a lot as well. I, can, I come across a lot of people saying, "Oh, Tim, you travel the world. You talk about awakening. You meet all these people. Are we waking up?" And my feeling is, well, the one people I meet, yes, without doubt. But mm. I'm meeting a small fraction, and yes. and actually, it's not going to happen because it's 2012 or whatever the next date is. It's it's a it's a, a process which is 
which we get to play some small part, but which is for our children's children's children, but yet we still get to do, do get to play some small part. Yes. Well, I agree that the rate of change is accelerating enormously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the one reason I wrote my recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices, is because I think there's now more availability of spiritual practices than ever before. Yeah. We now have access to most of the spiritual practices from all the world's traditions. It's astonishing, isn't it? You can, I can get my phone out and have the wisdom of the world within seconds. Exactly. And it's, just... it's extraordinary. Yeah. And, and so there is, a, in that sense, we're entering a new phase of spiritual evolution. Yes. And, you know, although uh, traditional religious observance is in decline in Western Europe, um, the interest in spirituality hasn't gone away. There's still, I mean, the number of people who are committed to an anti-religious and anti-spiritual point of view, sort of dogmatic atheists, is actually a minority. It's only 13%. And even then, some atheists have taken up meditation and are exploring spiritual uh, pursuits. So even modern atheism is not totally anti-spiritual. I thought one of the things I found fascinating, um, I was just remarking yesterday of, in your new book, on science and spirituality was exactly that. Even amongst scientists, the level of people who were who regarded as no there was no spiritual component to existence was very was relatively small. Yes, and I and that's that's deeply interesting. So it feels like maybe the decline in religion is actually a step forward, because it frees up a kind of a new rational spirituality which can combine this huge advance we've had in science with this perennial understanding of some deeper aspect of life, which is yes. so essential. Well, I think that too. I mean, I'm not anti-religion. In fact, I'm a practicing Anglican. Look, I so. want to, I've got to ask you about that because yes. you mentioned it. But I mean, it, it feels like, look, you're here, you're this revolutionary biologist who's really kind of thrown everything up in the air with these brand new ideas for some decades now. Mm. And, and is, seems, from what I can tell, to be both heavily respected by one group and heavily ridiculed by another, which mm. must be an interesting predicament. Um, and yet you're an Anglican, which seems quite conservative. Yes. Spiritually? Well, it's, um, it's, I'm a traditionalist. You know, I think that we have to, because of oh, because what of we're the talking about of the past, ah. we, we can't just erase the whole of our, you know, our cultural past and right. our family past right. and, and pretend it's not there. Right. And one of the things, well, I think one of the defects of the spirituality movement at the moment is that it, a lot of it operates on the ABC principle anything but Christian. Right. Um, most people in it have come from Christian backgrounds. <laughs> but, you know, it's like if it's sort of Peruvian shamanism <laughs> yeah. with ayahuasca or Native American drumming or lap uh, shamanism or, you know, um, Buddhism or... Yeah, then, you know, it's, then it's cool. It, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Um, so or right. transcendental meditation or You're whatever, right. or Qigong. Yeah. Um, but nothing to do with Christianity. Yeah. And I think that those of us who come from Christian backgrounds or Jew Jewish backgrounds, because Judaism and Christianity are so closely tied together, um, have to come to terms with their own tradition and relate to it okay. and for, make peace with it at least. Yeah. Um, because otherwise we've, we've, we've just amputated a whole part of our roots without dealing with them. And so personally, I find that the... Um, Anglican tradition is one of the most open of all Christian traditions, one of the least dogmatic. Yeah. And I meet a lot of Anglicans because I go to church on Sundays wherever I am. And um, I find that, um, you know, I can say what I like. 
in most Anglican uh, circles. You know, I, I say exactly what I think, yes. if anyone's interested. Yes. yes, my experience also. Yes, whereas the minute I enter a scientific institute... It's not like I that at all. I can't say what I like. <laughs> uh, you know, the sense of narrowness and, oh, and dogmatism is so, so strong. Much, yeah, funny. So, although the old cliche is that religious people are dogmatic and intolerant and scientists about free thinking, open almost the opposite is true, at least in Britain today. So how is it for you, I was before my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter, whilst we are talking, is doing her biology A-level. Yes. So she was busy, you know, she's, she's written notes all across all our walls and it's just crazy in our home right now. And uh, she was going, oh, so who are you going to go and talk to? And I said, oh, I'm going to speak to a gentleman called Rupert Sheldrake. So who's that? And I said, well, my own opinion is that if your daughter gets to study biology, that will be a name that is very significant. Mm. But right now, he's on the outside of things. Mm. But, and, and on the front cover of your book in the Sunday Times, it says you'll be seen as a pioneer or, you know, a, a prophet. How does it feel personally to be, have done this sort of groundbreaking work and yet be on the outside of the scientific mainstream? How, does that, how, how is that for you as a, on your, in your life journey? Well, you know, when I was, um, I studied philosophy of science at, at Harvard in 1963 to 64, just after I graduated from Cambridge. And I read at that stage Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which yeah. had just come out. Yeah. And it had a big influence on me because what he showed was that at any given time, science operates within sort of normal limits. There's a normal set of models. Anything that doesn't fit is rejected, yeah. marginalized, excluded as an anomaly. Uh, yet scientific revolutions occur from time to time when these anomalies are included. Now, it seemed to me at the time, and it still seems to me, that we're locked into this mechanistic materialist paradigm within science, which has reigned supreme for decades now, um, and that it's going to change. I know it's going to change because it's got so many limitations, as I show in my book, The Science Today. Do you think it'll be in your lifetime? Well, that's it. I don't know the time scale. You see, when I first started doing this, I thought it all might all change within five to ten years. Yes. And I was quite wrong. Yes. Um, things actually become, became more dogmatic and we had the rise of Richard Dawkins and that selfish gene dogmatism yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. I mean, it became much more restrictive and much more dogmatically so How does it feel to you that it might change after your lifetime? Well, it might even change in my lifetime. Okay, oh, let's I be optimistic. Let's no hope that you have a long life, life and it comes soon. Well, I think things are sh shifting very fast at the okay. moment. Um, first of all, the dogmatism of biology is breaking down because the selfish gene theory uh, is being um, greatly modified through epigenetics, yeah. the inheritance of acquired characters. Yeah. So evolutionary theory is in turmoil and it's no longer a dogmatic neo-Darwinism, it's completely untenable. Yeah. Secondly, the idea that genes control all inheritance is falling apart because of the missing heritability problem. Yeah. Thirdly, the um, idea that nature is a machine is not really credible in the light of evolutionary cosmology where it's much more like an evolving organism. We now have cosmic evolution, not yeah. a kind of static machine or even a yeah. machine running out of steam, which was the 19th century image yes. of the universe. Yeah. Um, and then there's the consciousness revolution, the fact that 
consciousness studies is now a major part of science. And the scientists in the last 20 years, 25 years, have been studying the nature of consciousness, which they ignored in most of the 20th century under the school of behaviorism in psychology. So people are now studying scientifically spiritual practices, as I show in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences. Mm. Um, all these kinds of conscious states are now under scientific exploration. And I think one of the revolutions that's occurring is through this new burst of research on psychedelics. I think there's a lot of people, including a lot of scientists, have taken psychedelics and their minds are opened by it. I, I'm just reading you know, Michael Pollan's book, um, you know, How to Change Our Minds. He's, he's you know, a science writer who's become very interested in psychedelics and takes them himself and as in, in the course of writing the book and says at the end of the book how um, this experience has opened his mind. We normally have the idea that we have a monopoly on consciousness, that's the materialist view, but he said it's now spread more evenly through nature as a result of his experiences Beautiful. for himself, that he's seen that there's a much more animistic sense of nature as alive and as consciousness much more widely distributed. Now, there's somebody who still calls himself, himself, he still calls himself a materialist, but this is no longer old-style dogmatic materialism. Yes, I, as it happens, I, last week or the week before I did ayahuasca myself for the first time in about 20 years, and one of the things which comes back straight away is that feeling of, ah, that everything is uh, one thing alive, everything mm. is animated. So, well, there's so much I'd like to talk to you about, Rupert. It's a real opportunity. You know, I, I, I said before we started this conversation, I first came across your first book when I must have been 21, 22, or something like that made an immediate impact on me because of the nature of your insights about time. And I suspect those insights have been in the back of my mind and have given birth to the stuff I'm doing right now. And, mm. and that's partly why I wanted to see you, just to say thank you for that. It makes a huge, made a huge difference. So it feels like maybe an appropriate place to draw this to a conclusion is to mention death. Because one of the big things, of course, which comes with any form of spiritual experience, I feel, is the sense that death is not the end of this journey we're on, but is actually a, a transition. And that is something very hard to sustain with uh, the materialist view, but actually becomes really clear with other views. So just on a personal basis, as we head towards the end of the story for, for all of us, as you and me, what, what's, your, what's your feeling about, about death? Well, I think that, uh, to put it very simple, in simple terms, I think that when we die, uh, we go on dreaming, but we can't any longer wake up. So I love that. That is so beautifully put. Can mm. I just tell you, I, th that's perfect. Oh, yes. good. Yeah, good. I think well, that's I'm glad beautifully it makes defined. Sense. Because I mean, we practice every night in our dreams, uh, having a parallel existence which is not in our physical body. Yeah. And we have a dream body in our dreams. Yeah. I mean, I walk around in my yeah. dreams, I talk to people, while my physical body is lying asleep in yes. bed. Now, do dreams, people have always seen dreams as kind of journeys you go on out of the body at night uh, into another realm, a realm of a dream realm, where we can link up with other people's dream realms, maybe with the dream realms of other species, yeah. maybe with the dream realm of Gaia maybe the whole planet, maybe who knows uh, what can happen in dream realms. 
And I think that psychedelic experiences, as it were, boost us into a kind of this kind of dream world, this this whole uh, psychic yeah. realm of yeah. the imagination. The imagination. Um, which has, I think, an autonomous existence in yes. the sense that that in dreams we're no longer subject to the normal boundaries and limits. Now, if one assumes there's something about us which does indeed travel out of our bodies and our dreams, then out-of-the-body experiences and near-death experiences are tastes of this transition from the normal embodied experience to it, uh, this being in this other body, the yeah. dream body, or what occultists called the astral body. Yeah. Um, it, be, uh, the dream body is a better word because it's closer to what we all experience. Yeah. So then, are we forever trapped in a dream world when we die? Uh, if so, then it might not be that much fun and sometimes it might turn into nightmares, which would be rather like hell. Mm. Or can we move on beyond it? And, and the traditional Roman Catholic view of purgatory is, I understand, a kind of dream world that but we can go on beyond it. So, for example, if we've made a habit of praying or meditating during our lives, if we can go on doing that in the dream world, opening up a portal to other greater and more inclusive forms of consciousness, then we may be able to pass beyond that dream world into a more unitive state, like as in mystical experiences. We may reach a point where that becomes a more or less permanent state of being, and that would correspond to you know, liberation, nirvana, um, you know, oneness with God and heaven. I mean, there are many ways of portraying a destination for our beings after death. And it seems to me that a dream state would be a transitional region that we pass through. That's my own view. Fascinating. It really resonates with a lot of my own, my own feelings. And um, I'm aware of of keeping your your valuable time but if if it's i'd like to just open one more thing with you just yeah, to get okay. your if that's okay just because um of what you've said you're the you know the thing which i came across with you about the nature of the past all that time ago and has informed all this great work you've done the thing which has arisen as a hypothesis a possibility something which transfixed me is the idea that that realm that you've described so beautifully has itself evolved and that we can see that this moment is the realization of ever new more emergent possibilities we've had that for 13.8 billion years it's uncontroversial to say it's led from hydrogen to the psyche to the soul to the imagination that's the thing which has come latest i just wanted to say what what's your, what would what's your reaction to the idea that that realm that we're experiencing right now Mm. We're already in it. We're mm. always in it. We're having this conversation in it. That mm. immaterial realm of ideas, of imagination, of images mm. has arisen from this and shaped itself as a domain, much like the biological domain has arisen from the physical. Mm. And that therefore that domain that you mentioned of other entities of, 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 that we live in when we die mm. is actually a product of evolution has actually arisen from the, you know, that it's been the physical, 10 billion years of physical, 3 billion years of biological, and then this, then the arising of an imaginos, a realm of, of images from that, which is immaterial. It's not that, which it clearly is if we just look at it right now, which we can exist in when this drops, we still have that. And in fact, that's the most emergent thing. So mm. rather than it being something which is there all, the t all along, it's something which is again, the most emergent things have arisen last. Does that, how does that fit with we are? Well, I mean, I, 
it, I think as far as the human collective imagination is concerned, that's certainly imagined and evolutionary. And it now includes input from mythologies of all cultures. I yes. mean, what Jung called the collective exactly. unconscious yeah. contains all these different mythologies, rituals, and from all different cultures. Now it contains all that, plus the products of television, films, novels, all the acts of imagination that saturate the modern world, advertising images. Yeah. I mean, all that's part of it, too. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a greater imagination, you see. Well, Plato called the realm of ideas or forms mm -hmm. as an underlying imaginal realm that underlies the whole of nature. Um, I think there's a kind of divine imagination as well. And um, I think there's also the imagination of all the living beings in, in, at different levels, since I think the sun and the earth have minds too. And th there may be a Gaian imagination, a solar imagination, a galactic imagination. We're within all those imaginations. Um, so um, we insofar as the divine imagination includes all possible forms and all possible species, not just on this earth, but on all planets, insofar as we contact that divine imagination, uh, we're in a realm that's far beyond the human. And that contact would itself cause the human imagination to enlarge, expand, and emerge further. But there may be uh, other greater forms of imagination than our own uh, already existing in the universe. So I don't see it as just us, sure. and just our minds. Sure, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, look, Rupert, thank you so much for uh, being willing to have this conversation with me. It's been a, a delight to finally get to speak to you in person and, well, and yeah, but thank explore you these for, ideas. You know, thanks for making these inquiries. I mean, I think it's really important, and I, it's great that you are on this journey, and very few people are actually asking these questions and thinking about these things. A lot of people are interested, but not many have the time and energy and persistence to pursue these things. My conversation with Rupert was as fascinating as I knew it would be. I think his idea of the presence of the past will prove to be extremely significant. I'd love to talk more about the idea that the planets and sun are conscious because I'm not convinced by that. Many of Rupert's ideas are more traditional than my own, but there is no doubt in my mind that future generations will come to see him as a pioneer of the new understanding of reality that's coming. <laughs>